Hello, and welcome to episode seven of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. If you recall, episode six ended with the expulsion of Jews and Muslims from Spain and the consolidation of Spain into something almost resembling its modern form, and the rise of the Spanish Habsburgs, who succeeded in building the largest maritime empire in the world for at least 150 years. Their cousins, the Austrian Habsburgs, had the largest land empire in Europe for many centuries and were in some ways friendly rivals. The story of the Habsburgs is related to so many other things that it's going to seem to you that I'm going off on several tangents, but that's a necessary transition to our focus on Ukraine, where the next several episodes will take place, or Ukraine's neighbors like Lithuania and other places which we as children or our parents as children mistakenly thought of as Russia. Most American Jews, of course, are of Ashkenazic origin, and they were told by their parents or grandparents that they came from Russia, but what is really the case is they came from lands that were part of the Tsarist Empire. But those lands are today largely in Poland, Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, Lithuania, etc. In point of fact, Jews were not allowed to live in Russia proper, They were confined to the Pale of Settlement, which was sort of the western fringes of the Russian Empire. We will focus eventually on the city of Lviv, which is the capital of the Austro-Hungarian province of Galicia, and was the homeland of Galicianers, one of two major linguistic groups, at least, of Ashkenazic Jews. The other group, of course, is the Litvaks, and the differences between these two groups are too many to enumerate. But among them, and they may seem sort of superficial, but the pronunciation of Yiddish in Litvak is Zygazunt, and in Galicianer it's Zygazint, or maybe vice versa. I don't really remember. There's also the famous Gefiltefish line that forms a frontier between the Galicianer world and the Litvak world. North of that line, Gefiltefish is salty because salt was in abundance and pickling was a way of preserving foods. South of that line, gefilte fish was sweet because sugar beets were in abundance and it was very easy to use them to sweeten dishes. So before we get lost in the dustbins of history, going back more than a thousand years, and talk about various dynasties like the Habsburgs and their predecessors, the Babenbergs, and the whole notion of the Kievan Rus, I want to tell you a story from my diplomatic career that illustrates probably better than anything I've told you so far the notion that places on a map are not always what they seem. There were many centuries when Poland was not on any map because it was essentially partitioned between the Tsarist Empire, uh, what would become Germany, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. There are times when the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth stretched from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea and was one of the biggest countries in Europe. There was a time when Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine were all ruled from Kiev, 
And some of these things actually have modern day consequences. One example, when the United Nations was formed after World War II, Russia somehow managed to negotiate from a position of strength three UN votes, one for itself, one for Ukraine, which was one of the 15 Soviet republics within the Soviet Union, and also one for Belarus. So Russia had three votes compared to our one, or China's one, or India's one. And that is a reflection of the fact that these three countries all started off as one. They, to one degree or another, share a common religion, and their languages are slightly different from each other, but mutually comprehensible in the same way that Danish, Swedish, and Norwegian are mutually comprehensible. Now, frankly, there's going to be some very dry history as part of our transition to Ukraine. But to lighten your load, I want to tell you one of my favorite anecdotes from my career as an American diplomat. When I opened the U.S. Embassy in Armenia after the former Soviet Union sort of imploded, various other countries were hesitant to open embassies in Yerevan, in large part because we had about two hours of electricity every two weeks, and there was no fuel oil, there was no heating oil. It was a very hard place to live, especially during the first two winters, or possibly even three, of its independence. So what many friendly countries in Europe would do is send a, a junior staffer from their embassy in Moscow to visit capitals in the Caucasus, like Yerevan, Tbilisi, and Baku, once every several months. Depending on the embassy, it was once every quarter, once every six months, once a year. And at one point, a good friend of mine in the American embassy in Moscow called and said, hey, I have a Swiss colleague who's a very good guy who's responsible for covering Armenia. But of course, he doesn't speak Armenian, and he doesn't know a soul there. So I'm wondering if I can send him to you for a briefing and maybe a meal and some like helpful orientation. I said, sure, send him, send him anytime. So this guy calls me, Andre. We make an appointment to have lunch in the embassy and to have a chat. And Andre doesn't look like any Swiss person I've ever met and doesn't speak with a typical Swiss-German or Swiss-Romand accent at all. So I asked him if he wouldn't mind telling me, like, where his family was from. And he said, that's really a complicated story. I said, how so? He said, well, my parents took me out of the former Czechoslovakia during the Czech Spring in 1968, and they moved to Switzerland as refugees. And I was a young kid then. But their roots, my grandparents' roots, are in a city that during the course of the 20th century was in at least five different countries. And anybody who lived there for the whole century would have had to change passports five times. I said, Ungvar, right? And the guy looked at me in amazement and said, how did you know? I said, my grandparents are also from there. So it's entirely possible that this Swiss diplomat's grandparents and my grandparents played with each other as children. And he gave me a big hug. His face just lit up, and there was an incredible bond created between us. So let me tell you about Ungvar, because it's very typical of this region. Most inhabitants of Ungvar are ethnic Hungarians who speak Hungarian and consider themselves Hungarian. But Ungvar hasn't been part of Hungary for a very long time. It was originally part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, 
then when that empire was split up in the wake of World War I, it became part of the newly created Czechoslovakia. Then, after World War II, that eastern tip of Czechoslovakia was occupied by the Soviet Union and annexed by the Soviet Union, so Ungvar became a Soviet city, still with a very large Hungarian-speaking minority. Then, when the Soviet Union split up, there was an instant transition from Soviet passports to Ukrainian passports. So, in the course of the 20th century, one would have had first an Austro-Hungarian passport, then a Hungarian passport, then a Czechoslovakian passport, then a Soviet passport, and today a Ukrainian passport. Now, I've never been to this town, but my parents have. My father wanted to see the place where his parents grew up, where they got married, and from which they emigrated to the U.S. This is only one of many examples, but the fact is that without leaving your city, you could, in the course of 100 years, live in five different countries in that part of the world. So, at the beginning of this series, I thought that the Balkans were impossibly complicated, And now I realize that much of Europe is far more complicated than we were brought up to believe. And even the city of Lviv, to which we will eventually come, I promise, is known by many different names. It's Lviv in Ukrainian, and today it's part of Ukraine. It's Lvov in Russian. It's also pronounced Lvov in Polish, but spelled completely differently. It's L-W-O-W. But in German and in Yiddish, the name of Lviv is Lemberg. And today, there are several flights a day from Vienna to Lviv, executed by Austrian airlines. But if you buy a ticket to Lviv, your ticket will say Lemberg. And if you don't know this basic part of the history of the region, you may think you have the wrong ticket or you're flying to the wrong place. In fact, you're flying to the same city, which today has a different name from what it had for centuries when it was under the rule of the Habsburg Empire. One more general point before we get specifically to the Habsburgs and their predecessors and their successors and all of that. And that point is that we tend to think of our world as being exceptional, different, unprecedented in terms of globalization, interconnectedness, how events in one part of the world affect life in another part of the world, etc. But in fact, nothing could be further from the truth because Throughout the period of time that we're going to be talking about today, which is basically the 10th century up to and including the 21st century, all of this region of Central and Eastern Europe was affected by events far away and sometimes cataclysmically affected. I'll give you just a few examples of some of these events. In the 11th century, there were the Crusades, which changed the face of the world and changed the culture and mentality of Western Europe. There were also Norman invasions and Norman conquests. And there were also the first incursions into eastern Anatolia of a tribe of Turks called the Seljuks, who were distant predecessors of the Ottoman Turks, who would create the other large land empire in eastern and central Europe that rivaled the Austro-Hungarian Habsburgs. Now, that's only in the 11th century. In the 13th century, there were Mongol invasions that radically changed the face of Europe and that established briefly 
the largest land empire the world has ever seen. Now, we tend to use Mongolian in sort of a negative light today, and it's really because we don't know the history. But the Mongols created the largest land empire that the world has ever seen. And it stretched, and this is no exaggeration, from the Korean Peninsula in the northeast to the Sinai Peninsula in the southwest, and from Southeast Asia, like Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, these were cities that didn't exist then, but that part of the world, Vietnam, Indochina, basically, to Poland in the Northwest. So basically, all of Asia was united by an empire which believed in universal education and which governed so strictly to ensure the safety of travelers that a woman could safely travel alone all the way across Asia when it was ruled by the Mongols. They didn't only bring destruction in their wake. They created the first, essentially, what are amount to credit cards. They created the first passports. They created a great university and a lot else that affected Eastern and Central Europe. One other thing that affected Eastern and Central Europe, to a far greater extent than you may be aware of, is the Fourth Crusade, which essentially destroyed Constantinople. The Crusades were supposed to be directed against the infidel, the Muslims who ruled in the Holy Land. But in fact, the Fourth Crusade was perverted somehow and turned into a crusade against Orthodox Christians. Constantinople was sacked, and its importance as a trade center never recovered. So trade routes that depended on the sort of entrepot, the the exchange point of Constantinople, withered on the vine. And that had a huge effect on Kievan Rus, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, and even the Habsburg Empire. So without further ado, I'd like to talk about the Habsburgs finally, and also their predecessors, the Babenbergs. The Babenbergs were originally from Bamberg, which happens to be the city where my father, as a young 22-year-old after World War II, ran a POW camp. So these places are not abstract nothings for me. My father spent formative years of his life in Bamberg, and that was the seat of the Babenberger dynasty. They were given the imperial margravate of Austria from the time it was created in 966 until its elevation to a duchy in 1156. And they continued to rule there until their line went extinct in the year 1246, and they were replaced by the Habsburgs. Now, the capital of the Babenberg Empire, and ultimately the Habsburg Empire, was moved from Prague to Vienna in 1156. So although we think of Bohemia and Prague and most of what today is the Czech Republic as having been subservient to Vienna for centuries, in fact, Vienna used to be ruled from Prague for nearly 200 years, and then briefly again from 1583 to 1611. The Babenbergs built their royal center in Vienna in a square that is today called Amhof, and it was much less grand and pretentious because it was a much smaller empire than the capital built by the Habsburgs, ultimately. So the Habsburgs didn't immediately 
control all the lands once controlled by the Babenbergs. But ultimately, Austria and Bohemia were united, then Hungary was added to the Union, and the Habsburgs ruled what became known as the Austro-Hungarian Empire from 1526 to 1918. One of the first things they did when they took over in the middle of the 13th century was they moved the capital, the sort of seat of government, about three blocks away to a place which is today called the Hofburg and is a collection of buildings that now serve as government offices, as museums, as meeting rooms, as ballrooms for the famous ball season in Vienna. It's a whole complex of buildings, which if you really wanted to visit it thoroughly and see all the exhibits and all the museums, you could take a week. And the centerpiece of this whole complex is a huge open square known as Heldenplatz, which means Heroes Square. And it is that square that Bill Bryson, the famous humorist, refers to when he says that if an extraterrestrial landed on Earth and found himself in the Heldenplatz, he would rightly think that this was the capital of the world. That's how it looks. It's solid, imperial, etc., etc. And there is a famous arc-shaped building with a balcony in the middle over the main entrance. And it was there that Hitler gave the speech announcing the Anschluss and was cheered by hundreds of thousands of Austrians when Austria was annexed by Nazi Germany. And just to give you an idea of how young America looks to European eyes and how young even our oldest universities look, the oldest university in Prague was founded in 1347 by Charles IV, and it's still known as Charles University. And he was a Habsburg. And why did he build the first university in Prague? Because Prague was the old capital, and it was a center of learning and culture long before the capital moved to Vienna. One of his successors, almost 20 years later, Rudolf IV, built the oldest university in Vienna and opened it in 1365. So by accretion, expansion, military conquest, and dynastic marriages, the Austrian Habsburgs expanded their empire to include dozens of nationalities and probably even more dozens of languages. It was a complex, multi-ethnic empire which ruled in some unexpected places in Italy, in the Balkans, and in Ukraine. And we will come in our next episode to the Habsburg period in Lviv, but we will also look a little bit at Ukrainian history more generally so that you can put Lviv and the Galicianers in some kind of a context. Looking forward to our next session. Thank you.